But dear young people, dear friends, I invite you now to please turn your very prayerful attention to that portion of God's holy word that I read to you in your hearing. First of all, that first portion, and then we turn to the second portion. We read from Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 9. Know therefore that the Lord thy God, he is God, the faithful God, which keepeth covenant and mercy with them that love him, and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. And those words, know therefore that the Lord thy God, he is God, the faithful God. There is only one God, and he is styled as the faithful God. Only one God, and God is faithful. And then we read, from the passage there in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 19, Peter writing to Christians, Jewish Christians, that had been persecuted and had been spread abroad in those days, shortly after the Lord Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, scattered in Bithynia, Pontius, Galatia, those various areas. And he tells them not to be surprised by the various trials that come upon them, being the followers of God. And then he says this in verse 19, Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. The theme this afternoon, as was announced some four weeks ago, is the faithfulness of a covenant-keeping God, the faithfulness of a covenant-keeping God. The Lord, simply put, is faithful, and he has made covenants, and we'll look at some of those covenants in his word this afternoon with the Lord's help. These covenants ought never to be confused. The covenants are true. They are binding. They stand we are considering in our special meetings here with the young people the attributes of God. We began by considering, remember in the first place, the holiness of God. Many people have an idea of God. It's a God of their own imagination. Some of them are most insulting at all, aren't they? Terribly insulting. To make an image of God, to make a God with your hands. I can think of nothing more insulting. Imagine somebody misrepresenting you. But imagine misrepresenting he that they've never seen. All they've seen is his creation and the power of his creation. And yet they take something from his creation and they reduce God to his creation. He is the creator God. And this very creator God, as we read there in 1 Peter 4.19, Peter has been speaking about Christ. And my friends, Christ is the creator God. We are told in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and all things were made by him and for him. And then we're told that that very one who is the Word, who is the eternal Logos, became flesh. And the word was made flesh and dwelt amongst men. And we beheld his glory. 
says John, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He is the image of the invisible God, Jesus Christ, and yet what came into this world, stepped into time, space, and history, and became man. And this is the great mystery, for God was manifest in the flesh. This is the only way that he could save sinners. God is holy. We thought in the first place, and we're reminded of those words, are we not, in Isaiah 59.2, where Isaiah says, but your iniquities, your sins, have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you, that he will not hear you. Sinners need to understand that, my friends, God is a holy God. And even when we're discussing these attributes of God, my friends, we are treading on holy ground. We have to be so careful when we discuss Almighty God, especially the preacher, because I will have to give an account. I have no liberty, no license to misrepresent God in any way, but to present him as he presents himself in the word of God and to present what he thinks of you and what he thinks of me and what he thinks of this world. God is holy and he cannot countenance any sin. And then we thought of the wisdom and the power of God in the second place. That was our second study. And in God's infinite wisdom and power, he ordained the way of salvation. He ordained it even before the world began. He planned it. He purposed it. How is the age-old question, as even Job asked, how can man be just with God? That is, how can a man be right with God? How can a sinful creature like you and me, how can we ever enter God's heaven? How can we ever be safe in the presence of God? How can we entertain any thought of being with God? How can we even entertain the idea that he should not consume us in an instant here upon this sinful world? How is it that God is even sustaining this world until that great and final day? Well, because God has done something tremendous, and he has done it in his Son, and he devised that plan even before the foundation of the world by God justifying sinners. Paul tells us in uh, Romans chapter 3, he says in uh, Romans 3, 26, he says, God is both the just and the justifier of them that believe in Jesus. God is the one that makes sinners right. And this is the amazing way. And it is through the cross. Not just the cross, but it's through the life of Jesus Christ. It's through the life of one who is called the second Adam. Jesus Christ came to be the federal head, as it were, of a new people. You and I, we all have the same first parents. Adam is my great, 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 all the way back grandfather. We're all related to Adam and Eve. We all come from two human beings, the whole of the human race. We're told 
by one blood, God has made many nations. There are not races. There's one human race. And all come from that person, Adam and Eve. But Adam sinned. And being the federal head of the human race, plunged all of humanity into a lost estate. We are born like Adam was after the fall in sin, shapen in iniquity. But by another Adam, who is called the life-giving spirit, God reconciles sinners to himself by his life, the life that sinners have never lived, and then dying in their place. Therefore, God is both the just and the justifier of them that believeth in Jesus. Now, this is all very foolish to man until he is born again. This is stupidity to man until he is born again. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians that the preaching of the cross is foolishness to them that perish. When we speak about preaching the cross, we speak about Jesus Christ dying on a cross, dying for the sins of his people taking the full penalty, that penal, that punishment that is due, because God is just, but he is also the justifier of them that believe upon him. And so we thought of, in that second place, God's wisdom and power. God's wisdom not only to sustain this present world, but to keep it to that final day when Jesus Christ will come into this world for the last time. And then with the power also, his power to save sinners, it's unspeakable power. And God saves sinners in a way that men would never have imagined. Men never would have imagined that God, how could God save? Well, the Old Testament sacrifices were pointing to the need of bloodshed. When Moses took in the book of Exodus, the word of God, he took it before the people. And it says he sprinkled the book, the book of the covenant with blood. And my friends, the Bible, as it were, is sprinkled all over with the blood of Christ. It's constantly speaking of that need of the shed blood of a spotless lamb. So that when the Lord Jesus would come into the world, John would say, behold, the Lamb of God. Well, we have thought of God's holiness in the first place. And then we thought of his wisdom and his power. When we think of God's holiness, that is essentially what he is. He is holy. The essence of his glory is his holiness. And then we think of his wisdom and his power and how he purposed salvation and how he affected it. It's quite amazing, isn't it? The wisdom of God defeats, doesn't it, even the wisdom of this world. When men thought they could put the Lord Jesus Christ to death and silence him, it was the answer that God provided for the sins of his people. When Christ said, it is finished, I don't think a lot of people realized what was meant when he cried, to tell us die, it is finished. The work was over, that life was lived. The penalty was paid. 
the sins, the debt of his people that he was bearing in his own body was paid lock, stock, and barrel. Now, the faithfulness of God is what we want to consider this afternoon. This is the third aspect. Unsaved men, my friends, overlook all of these attributes of God. You think of, first of all, the first one I mentioned, the holiness of God. Men in this world overlook the holiness of God. Men think that they can just enter into heaven by their lives if they've just done some good. It's folly. What about your sin? No man can enter into heaven apart from atonement of sins. That's why the other religions can't help anybody. They're all man-made. They're all man-centered and they're all full of man's self-righteousness, trying to earn his way to God. But something else men overlook, that is the divine wisdom of God in this salvation that is through Jesus Christ. Now, here we're thinking of this aspect of God's faithfulness. The title we have given is The Faithfulness of a Covenant-Keeping God. Now, in the Bible, you will find the word covenant many, many times appear. But I want to come to that word in just a moment. I want to think, first of all, on this word faithfulness. Here, we're thinking of the faithfulness of God, and these are the attributes of God. You and I, we can think of people who maybe we might describe as faithful people in this world. And uh, let me say, man can be faithful in many things but always up to a point. And you see that his faithfulness always comes short. Men are faithful up to a point. When we think of faithfulness, two words really come to my mind when I think of faithfulness. The, the, first of all, the integrity behind the intent to be faithful. You are wanting to be faithful. And there has to be a character of integrity You think of somebody that is wanting to do something for you. And uh, they mean it sincerely. And therefore, there has to be integrity behind that. They have to be honest and sincere. That can be said of God. But there's another aspect that must never be forgotten. And that is ability. Somebody might have well and good intentions to do something. But they lack the ability to carry out what they have promised. And this is always true of man. He lacks all ability. But you see, of course, God being supreme, God being omnipotent and altogether wise and altogether holy does not lack integrity, neither does he lack ability to do what he has said he will do. He has all of those. He has all integrity. He would never impugn his character, neither will his power fail. God has all power and all ability. So we think of this when we think about the faithfulness of God. Now in the first place, let me just say, God never speaks rashly. And when we come and we think about these things of God, God, who is from all eternity, he is says of himself that he cannot lie. God cannot lie. This is what his word says. 
Titus chapter 1, verse 2. In hope of eternal life, which God hath promised, who cannot lie. God does not lie. And God has every intention of fulfilling what he has said he will do. How does he do this? Well, first of all, as we will come to the gospel and we'll consider some of these covenants that are in the Bible so that there's no confusion, you think, why Jesus Christ in Isaiah is called the one who is mighty to save? He's mighty to save because he says there in Isaiah that he speaks in righteousness when he came into this world. I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. The Lord Jesus is God eternal, and he has been constantly speaking through his word. His word reveals him. He said to the Jews in his day, you search the scriptures, and in them ye think ye have eternal life, but it is they which do testify of me. They speak of him, and he was even there with Abraham, one of the Angels in a pre-incarnate form appeared there, three of them, and one of them was the Lord himself. Eventually, he came into this world and he, he lived for his sinners, for his people. He died for them, and now he lives in them, and he will not fail, and he will come again for them. Now, the big question is this. We speak about the faithfulness of God this afternoon. What the question is, what is he faithful to? You know, we can speak about faithfulness, and we don't use that word glibly or loosely. You know, people might speak of somebody being a very faithful uh, person on a team, and it could be quite a, a bad team. It could be quite a, a bad organization. And there are plenty of those around in this world. But God is faithful to his promises. And we must never go beyond his promises. Now, why does God make promises? Well, first of all, man is dishonest. And we are very used to dealing with dishonest people, aren't we? Because we have to be honest. We're not honest ourselves, even at the best of times. People, when they get married, they make covenant vows. They make vows to each other. I promise to do this in sickness and in health. The wife says that she will honor and obey her husband. The husband says he will love his wife as Christ loved the church. Why, why are these promises made? Because man basically cannot be trusted. And God makes these promises because we are so used to dealing with men who are unfaithful. And God knows that. God knows that. And sometimes, sadly, we forget also what may be said. But God's promises are made because they are good promises. And sometimes they're almost too good for us to believe in a, in a sense. You know what I mean by that. We say, well, that's too good to be true. But God has recorded these things for us. And uh, it's right that we study them. You know, people have their own ideas of the Bible. And they're never based on the promises of God. 
If you're a young Christian, I would encourage you, one of the, the most important things you need to learn are what are the promises of God. Well, I can say in very short, the promises of God are yea and amen in Christ Jesus. God does not deal with mankind apart from his son, Jesus Christ. You can study the scriptures from cover to cover, from Genesis to Revelation. God, almighty God the Father, does not deal with mankind apart from a mediator. And there has to be a mediator. That very mediator is the one who created the world and who will redeem a great vast number of people out of every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation. And those promises are yea and amen in him. And they are sure. Now, when we come to the word of God, we say God is faithful. We see it. And you know the many promises that God has made have actually been fulfilled in the word of God. I'm going to show you just some of them. We're thinking about the faithfulness of God. Now, the word covenant has to do with agreement between parties. And we see these covenants made in the Bible. There are at least four main covenants in the Word of God. Two of them are what we call bilateral covenants. And that involves uh, two parties having to meet certain, certain conditions in that covenant. And two of them, we would say, are unilateral covenants in which God fulfills the requirements of those. And thus it is not dependent upon man. And of course, as I said, man proves himself, doesn't he, day after day, to be unfaithful. Man proves himself really to be a liar, as we will see. But God, when he works in a soul, he enables his people to fulfill that which they cannot fulfill in themselves by his spirit. Now, the first covenant, we should be very familiar with it. I wouldn't say these come particularly in order, but we see them in terms of chronology in the Bible. So if you go to Genesis chapter 1, we told there, sorry, chapter 2 and verse 16, after God made Adam in the garden, we have here this covenant, which many have called a covenant of works. Adam, when he was made, God promised to keep him here upon this world. And we have to remember that the world then was very different to the world that we see now. That so long as he obeyed God and he didn't disobey God, he would live. But if he didn't, death would ensue. Genesis 2.16, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Now God's promise to Adam was that he would give him life. This was God's end of that covenant if Adam continued to obey. But if he disobeyed, it would be death. Adam's obedience meant life. It meant God's favor. It meant God's presence. Disobedience. It meant God's separation from Adam. And he was 
As soon as he sinned, he was taken from the very presence of the Lord and out of Eden. And God placed those cherubim at the east side of the gate with flaming fire and sword so that he could not have access to the tree of life again. So that's the first covenant. That covenant, and really we could say that was a bilateral covenant. And then we have another bilateral covenant, the covenant made with Israel. Deuteronomy 28, it's a very, very long passage. The first 16 verses really have to do with promises of blessing. If they, when they went into the land, God would bless them abundantly. We read there, even in Deuteronomy 7, didn't we, if they obeyed his commandments and they destroyed all of these heathen, wicked people who were misrepresenting God and doing terrible, abominable things in the land, if they destroyed them, that there would be a nationalistic blessing. Now that covenant, we must emphasize, never conferred eternal life. Never. But it did confer, and it did promise a, a, a blessing that they would be so favored that none of their enemies could defeat them, and they would be protected, and their crops would be amazing, and God would bless them as a nation. And that covenant, indeed, even up until the time of the Lord Jesus that he came into this world, and many believe that that covenant still stands today, that if the people repent of their sin and seek the Lord, God would protect that nation. There in Exodus 19, verse 5, we read, Now therefore, if ye will obey my voice indeed, and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people. For all the earth is mine, and ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests, and so on. And then the people, you come to Exodus 24, 7, the people said, All the Lord has said we will do and be obedient. You see, it was a covenant a bilateral covenant involving both God and the people. And you know, we have so many times in the Old Testament, even though these people sinned, we have it through the book of Joshua and Judges, even when they went into the promised land, when they sinned, God brought enemies upon them. And when they repented of their sin, because God even had power over the enemies, God was so gracious, and he restored them back to himself again, and there was blessing again. Time and time again, God was proving himself to be faithful to these people. And then there are promises, even of the terrible woes, even if we're seeing in our studies here on the Lord's Day morning as a church, when the people, if they disobeyed, what God would do, he would bring famine, pestilence, wars, all kinds of things. God, what was he ultimately doing? All of that was purposed so that through this nation, even the Messiah would come into the world, Jesus Christ, the righteous, who would be born of the tribe of Judah. So God was preserving this nation. And even if you turn to, we don't have time now, the book of Romans chapter 11, God, Paul even says, hath God forsaken 
And you have to remember that this is even after the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Hath God forsaken the nation? And he said, God forbid. He hasn't ultimately forsaken the nation. And he goes on to speak in that chapter about those who are truly those who will believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's ultimately what we're praying for, even in this time. Not only that the Lord will save from every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation, but even those perhaps in that war-torn land of Israel right now, that God might even have mercy upon souls there, and they might come to a light and knowledge of the Savior, Jesus Christ. And God is faithful. We thank the Lord. He has still spared the nation and kept it even to this day. But nonetheless, that we must understand that that covenant with Israel really had particular and peculiar nationalistic blessings in terms of God's protection and guidance for that nation, but it never conferred eternal life, but it would point ultimately to the Savior. And then there are two, what we call unilateral covenants in the Bible. The first we can think of is that one that God made with Noah. It was a covenant that he made with Noah. And what was it? It was after the flood. In Genesis chapter 9, are we not told there, in verse 8, it says, And God spake unto Noah and to his sons with him, saying, Behold, I will establish my covenant with you and with your seed after you and with every living creature that is with you, the fowl and the cattle and every... He even made this covenant with animals. Well, the animal can't speak with people. What did God say? He said... Verse 11, Genesis 9, And I will establish my covenant with you, neither shall all flesh be cut off any more by the waters of a flood. What did God say in this? He was saying, this is my promise to the world. To all men of the world, I will never destroy this earth with water again. God is going to destroy this earth one day, but not with water. Now, when we look at the world... Three-quarters of it's covered with water. wasn't like that before, we believe. God opened up the fountains of the deep. Underneath the crustal layers must have been a tremendous amount of water. And then we're told God also opened up the heavens. And God was faithful, wasn't he, in bringing that judgment. After 120 years, he said to Noah, Man shall not be. And God was true to that, to that promise that he would destroy. But he's been true to this, hasn't he? Although three quarters of this earth is filled with water, God has not flooded this earth again. Now there have been floods, but not to destroy mankind completely. And you see, that covenant does not depend on man. That's why I say it is a unilateral covenant. Conditioned upon God's faithful word. And despite how wicked men may get, it's not going to be the melting of the ice caps that are going to flood this earth. But God will come in great judgment. It will burn with fervent heat, as Peter says. The heavens and the earth will part. But then there is, lastly, and perhaps more importantly, 
another unilateral covenant. It's called the covenant of grace. And that covenant was made, as it were, even before the foundation of the world. And God is faithful to that covenant as he is to all covenants. And that really was hinted at as early as Genesis 3.15 when Adam and Eve had sinned. God pronounced even to Satan that his son, the seed of the woman, would crush, defeat Satan's head. That he would bruise his heel, but ultimately that Christ would have the victory. And then again, it's alluded to, to Father Abraham, the father of the faith, as he is called, in Genesis 17 in the verse 4. And we read, As for me, says the Lord, behold, my covenant is with thee, and thou shalt be a father of many nations. Not only of the Jews. Now, we have to remember this, that Father Abraham, uh, he then had a son Isaac, and then Jacob, and then after Jacob was that great nation Israel formed. that were not a people. But Abraham would have a people beyond that. A people who had the spirit just like Jacob. Who wanted those eternal covenant blessings of Almighty God. Jacob, even as Abraham, we're told, looked for a city whose builder and maker is God. You see, Abraham, when he was told that he would be a father of many nations, understood, even while he was living in tents here, and he never saw the fulfillment of that promise, that God was faithful to fulfill that promise. He understood that this kingdom was afar off, not seen in this world, that's why the Lord Jesus said, Abraham saw my day and was glad. He rejoiced in the Lord to come. Now that covenant of grace, again, was unilateral. That is, it, it, it was entirely dependent upon God. Because God knows man, sinful man, after the fall, he would fail. And therein, Hebrews 6.13, we have a wonderful consolidation of that promise. How it says there, the Apostle Paul says, For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself. God never swore by Abraham, but by himself. And there was a wonderful sign of that covenant. There was an oven, and Abraham was put into a very deep sleep. And there were the divided portions of animals. And each party, if that covenant was to be made, ordinarily went through the division of those divided portions of animals, saying, if I don't fulfill my side of this agreement, this is what's going to happen. I will die. I will no longer be. But God caused a furnace. Of course, we know that in Scripture, God is called consuming fire. When God first appeared to Moses, he appeared in a burning bush. And who was that but Christ? The I Am of John 8. And there was Abraham in a deep sleep, 
And God passed through the midst of those divided portions of animals. And God was conferring to Abraham, Abraham, this is dependent upon me. This is all down to me, Abraham. Of course, Abraham, he was a justified man. He was a saved man, but Abraham failed. On many occasions, we know how he lied about his wife, Sarai, at least twice. Pharaoh, and then Abimelech, and so on. And remember how God gave him a son, even in very old age, over a hundred years old. And his wife passed childbearing years. And God, you see, through that promise, through that seed, which would eventually be Christ, would make that promise good. And that is to eternal life, to give that blessing. And that also, that covenant, not to confuse you this afternoon, but in terms of this covenant that God had made with sinners, this is something he made with his son even before the world began. Even before the world began. We, young people, do you know Psalm 2? I mean, maybe you know the words. And maybe you can recite Psalm 2. But do you know the meaning of Psalm 2? One of those psalms that I love to sing. We should all be very, very familiar with the psalms. And we should love singing the psalms because they are the word of God. And the word of God is full of promises. And in that Psalm 2, we have a tremendous promise of the Father to the Son. And it's this promise, Psalm 2, verse 7, I will declare the decree the Lord has said unto me, Thou art my Son. This day have I begotten thee. Ask of me and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance. And you see, that is what Abraham was promised. The Father, the Son, the Spirit came together and God has decreed from all eternity past and promised. Paul says in Titus that God promised before the world began. Now, before the world began, who did he promise? If there were no men, if there were no angels, who did he promise? He promised his son to give his son the heathen for his inheritance. Not only the Jew, believing Jew, but Gentiles. And in Jesus Christ, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, but all are one in Christ. It's that covenant. It's the covenant in the blood of Jesus Christ, my dear friends, that I want to speak about. That God is faithful. As you survey all of these covenants, was God not faithful to Adam? Adam, the day that you sin, you will die. Was, has God not been faithful to Noah? Noah, I'll never flood the earth again and destroy mankind. Look at all the covenant promises to Israel, to give them a nationalistic blessing. Again, not eternal life through that covenant, but to bless that nation. And even now, you know, the Lord has come in for that nation and kept it for millennia. It's a wonder of wonders that it still exists. And God has been faithful. He cannot lie. He will not lie. But you see, all of those covenants pale into insignificance 
if we miss the big one. And the big one is this eternal life in Jesus Christ. This is the most important one, isn't it? Because what is this life? Many people think not beyond this world. Many people just think in terms of, well, I want a good crop. I want good health. I want a peaceful life. But what beyond this life, my friends? What beyond this life? God's faithfulness is unto the heavens, unto eternal life in Jesus Christ. All of those covenants contain the promises of God, and none of them have failed. And I wanted you to think about this. What separates Christianity from all the religions of this world? None of those religions can tell you the future. None of those religions have prophets that can tell you the future. And they mostly lie about the past. I don't know if you've read much of the Quran, but it lies about Abraham and uh, distorts truth about Abraham and Isaac and Ishmael. It's perverse. And it has a perverse view of the holiness of God. But God is perfect, not only in his will, but what he has promised is a glorious new heavens and a new earth in Jesus Christ. Now, God is so different to us, friends, isn't he? Think of faithfulness. That really, we have to say, when we mean faithfulness, we mean faithfulness in every detail. People, as I said, can be faithful up to a point, but not God. All of the promises of God are true. In this passage that we read here, Peter says in 1 Peter 4.19, Wherefore, let him that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as a faithful creator. Peter's telling us, even in this chapter, that if you are a Christian and you are suffering, it's by the will of God. God has actually determined your suffering not for your harm, but for your good, your eternal good. And I can say that as a Christian, whatever suffering I've had, whatever trial, whatever difficulty I've had in my life, I can say this, God works all things together for good to them that love him, to them that are the called according to his purpose. And Peter is saying, look, if you're a Christian, if God has given you his son, Will he not also, as Paul says, give you all things also along with him? And you can commit your soul to a faithful creator? You're a young Christian. You look at this world and you see maybe even Christians suffering. You see people going through all kinds of trials. Every one of them can commit themselves, my friends, to a faithful creator. And everyone, like Job, will so say, though he try me, and though even he slay me, I shall come forth as gold. Men are liars, but not God. He's faithful. Psalm 58 verse 3 says, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they be born, speaking lies. 
You know, but here's the difference. God cannot lie. Young people, the best thing you can do as a young Christian is learn the promises of God. And one thing God loves is when you pray those promises to him. You, you pray them. He loves to hear them. We sang it in that psalm, how Abraham, Isaac, they all appealed to God, and God heard them. The problem is, we don't learn the promises of God. We don't read them. We don't study them. And sadly, we begin to have very low views of God. We begin to have a very low understanding of God. That ought never to be the case. You know, when Joshua brought the people by God's strength into the land, he said, not one thing has failed that God has promised. Not one thing. And I can say this throughout the Word of God. You can search the Bible, my friends. Not once will you find God to be a liar. You know, Balaam, when he went to go and curse the Jews, the Israelites, he couldn't. Balaam came from what is known now as Iran, ancient Mesopotamia, from the place of Ammon. And he was hired by Balak, the king, to go and curse the people of Israel, and he couldn't. He says in Numbers 23, 8, How shall I curse whom God hath not cursed? Or how shall I defy whom the Lord hath not defied? God promised to bless Abraham. In blessing, I will bless. But again, let me say, all of God's promises are yea or yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And they come not because of the condition that the sinner meets. The sinner comes as a sinner. He has nothing to offer God. Look at the man on the cross. If there is a so-called purgatory, that man should have gone to purgatory, wouldn't you say? But the Lord Jesus said, no, today. You shall be with me in paradise. That's the promise, you see, because it's of grace. It's of God's grace that he saves sinners. Unconditional. It's not conditioned upon the sinner. The sinner comes as a sinner. Paul says, this is a faithful saying, and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And he saved that man. Never went to a church probably in his life. Did terrible evil. But he was a sinner that appealed to God's mercy in Jesus Christ. What could he pray? Did he praise good works? No. Could Abraham praise good works? No. Abraham looked to the Savior that was to come. And that's who the sinner must look to, to Christ, not look to your life, not look to penance. Penance not in the Bible. Repentance is in the Bible. Penance is bringing pain to yourself, as we see Jehoram doing with that sackcloth underneath his garments. 
trying to conceal, thinking that somehow God would merit something to him if he suffered. People even wear these things today, I hear. Salices. That cannot earn favor with God. You see, God is a gracious God. But he's only gracious in Jesus Christ. And there are times even a Christian, let me say, you're a young person. You see, being a Christian, and I've learned this over the years, if you want to serve Christ better, and if you, you want better service to him, you want to be a better Christian, you get to know God better. You get to understand more of what it costs to make a sinner whole. You, you must understand what you deserve and what Christ undertook for you as his child. And then, as Paul says, the love of Christ constrains the sinner. That's what moves and motivates the heart. When you see your unfaithfulness and Christ's faithfulness, that's what motivates the heart. The old Puritans used to speak of those sights of the cross that we need to see more in our mind's eye. Rabbi Duncan, one of the great men of the past, and some of his works have been greatly moved by them. The shadows of Calvary. The things that he suffered, the things that he endured for his people. And who was faithful. As Peter says, he who is the creator God, you consider him. Wherefore, let him that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. The very one who is the faithful creator became the lamb. That's how faithful God is. How faithful Jesus Christ is. And then you will not lose heart. When you consider what God has done in his faithfulness to redeem his people, your heart will be moved to be faithful to him. You know, it is the love of Christ. What did Jesus say? He said, love one another as I have loved you. That ought to be the motivating factor in the church. We shouldn't be, have to be driven to do things. It should come as a reflex of our love to him. Now I ask you, you know something of that love? Maybe you don't. But it is our prayer that God might save souls and bring sinners to Christ. And he is faithful. Now let me just say something else. God's faithfulness is not a solitary, confined attribute. It's not on its own. God is faithful because, first of all, he can't lie. He's holy. And he is faithful because, as I said earlier, he is all-powerful. And what did Paul say? When he was in the prison, locked up in Philippi, sorry, not locked up in Philippi, but in Rome, writing to the church at Philippi, 
He said, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. He that has begun a good work in you, he says to the child of God, will see it to completion to the day of Jesus Christ. See, what am I doing? I'm bringing you back to the Bible's promises. The young Christian, what must he do? He must look to God. And as God says, he will do the work, you keep praying to him, Lord, you have promised to do this work. Now may I commit myself to you. Paul says, work out your salvation in fear and in trembling. Now you can't work out what's not in you. If it's in you, it will be worked out. And maybe that's the question with some. Maybe you're not saved. If there's love for Jesus Christ, if there's a thankfulness for his faithfulness, despite our unfaithfulness, and let me say this, our unfaithfulness should really humble us. Does it? And people, if you say you're a Christian, and you say, well, I've been unfaithful, how do you say that? Do you say that with nonchalance? Do you say that glibly? Do you say it lightly? You shouldn't. You should say it with a sense of mourning, as I should. I have been unfaithful. I think we all know we've been unfaithful. But you see, this is the bed of nails for the Christian. It's the bed of excuses for the empty professor. But it's the bed of nails it's a bed of pain to say that I have been unfaithful. Paul says this to Timothy, if we believe not, yet he abideth faithful, he cannot deny himself. But you see, we've got to come afresh and say we're unfaithful. And if we do that, if we just come right with God, we have to believe that he abides faithful. And if he has given us a knowledge of his Son, not that he is just the Lord Jesus, but that he is our Lord Jesus, and our life now is owned by him, he will bless us, and he will never forsake us. My friends, God is faithful in all of his covenants. And one thing let me say, never confuse the covenants. This is a great tragedy today. Never confuse the covenants. There's the covenant of works. There's the covenant of Noah. There's the covenant with Israel. To bless it, and it still stands. He will bless the nation nationalistically. But there is also the covenant of grace. And that abides forever. And that leads to eternal life. And all that are in those covenants, or in that last covenant, the Lord says this is the new covenant in my blood. That's the covenant of grace. Abraham was circumcised in the heart before he was circumcised in the flesh. That's what we're told. He was in that covenant. God made him a new person. And all that are in that covenant have his laws delightfully in their hearts. And they want to do his will. 
because they do see God is faithful and true. God gave us his son. Is that lovely hymn sometimes we sing? Jehovah is a God of might. He framed the earth. He built the sky. And what he speaks is surely right. The strength of Israel will not lie. True to his word, God gave us his son to die for crimes which men had done. Blessed pledge he never will revoke a single promise he hath spoke. Amen.